Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What's the role of a prison? Most would say the goal is to strictly punish an offender who's been convicted of a crime. But rehabilitation is being embraced, too, at least in states like Connecticut, where outgoing Governor Dana Malloy's Second Chance Society has helped shape several programs to combat recidivism. Now, it's your public dollars that are used to pay for the state prison system that houses about 13,000 inmates in Connecticut. But that's not all taxpayer money is used for. Starting last year, a string of lawsuits have been filed on behalf of inmates who allege substandard medical care resulting in misdiagnoses and, in some cases, inmate deaths. And so far, the state has settled one of these cases. How did this happen? We'll talk more with Hartford Current reporter Josh Kobner, who's been covering these cases. We'll also hear from the mother of a 19-year-old inmate who died. Keyshawna Staten has filed a federal civil suit against the state of Connecticut after her son, KJ, died from an undiagnosed infection back in 2015. This issue has reached a critical point under the administration of Scott Semple. The outgoing Department of Correction commissioner is leaving in January. But over the last year, he's had to respond to public and legislative scrutiny from these alleged malpractice cases. And Semple is back in studio to talk about the DOC's response. I want to welcome Scott Semple to our studios. Thanks for coming in today. Good morning. Um, when um, listeners and, and other uh, residents uh, read the details of these cases, you know, they are pretty horrific when you think about uh, inmates uh, in one particular case. Um, he had uh, undiagnosed skin cancer. and At one point, he's, his sores were bleeding into his bed sheets. Another uh, struggled to breathe, couldn't talk, uh, so much so that uh, inmates uh, called him Chewbacca. Um, he later died from larynx cancer. Uh, another uh, young man who we'll be hearing from, his mother, uh, who died from an undiagnosed lung infection. Um, obviously, the state's being sued um, on, with some of these cases, and you can't talk about current litigation. But as a whole, as commissioner of the State Department of Correction, how do you respond uh, to these cases and the details that have been disclosed? Well, obviously, these are uh, tragic circumstances that um, will will come to light in terms of uh, what litigation looks like and uh, how we proceed through that process. But you know, any time that there's a circumstance of uh, uh, perceived uh, bad medical care, um, you know, we have to take that very seriously and look at it. And the goal has been since July, since we've taken over the health care delivery system uh, from uh, Correctional Managed Healthcare, University of Connecticut, uh, we've been working very, very hard to put the agency on solid ground in how we deliver health care. And we, we try to, uh, uh, with a goal of a community standard of care. So that's a process, and it's going to take some time, but we are moving forward and progressing in that regard. Uh, you mentioned July, so that was when uh, the DOC took under um, its purview uh, this uh, managing these medical staff that provide care to inmates? Correct. Uh, um, in 1997, uh, the state went into contract with another state entity, and that was uh, the University of Connecticut Correctional Managed Healthcare. And fast forward to 20, uh, 
where are we in 2018 in July uh, we've we've taken it back I'm actually excited about uh, taking this on uh, uh, I'm not going to see the end result of it because of my pending retirement in January but uh, that being said uh, the goal from July forward to January 1st is to fill some voids that we think are necessary in order to put the healthcare delivery system on some semblance of solid ground for the next administration. You mentioned voids. So what were some of the gaps in care that allowed uh, some of these cases to happen? Well, there, there was there's criticism about uh, a process called Utilization Review Committee and the decisions made uh, in terms of uh, uh, making determinations of what kind of care and, and response to circumstances that are brought to uh, our attention um, and the time frames of how long it took to meet the needs uh, of the patient uh, who happens to be an incarcerated individual. So we have uh, basically scrapped that 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 concept into uh, something different now, and we're evaluating our responsiveness uh, to that. So emergent circumstances obviously require immediate attention, but we're talking about, you know, determinations made by medical review and its response. So uh, just to back up, uh, Yukon Health uh, for some time since 1997, as you mentioned, had this no-bid $100 million contract a year to provide care for uh, thousands of inmates within the state prison system. You mentioned this uh, panel. So in the past, if there was an issue that an inmate had, um, they were seen by medical staff, but it was the panel of doctors who would sign off on what kind of care they received in the past? I, I am not the expert to walk you through the Utilization Review Committee concept. Uh, uh, what I can tell you is that it, it essentially was a panel that would that make uh, the decisions and to you know what level of uh, treatment was uh, appropriate depending on the circumstances. So what changed? You said that you've now scrapped that. So who is responsible for taking on when an inmate says that they're not feeling well? Can you walk us through that process? So uh, it's... If someone is uh, uh, evaluated by uh, a medical professional and referred to um, uh, additional treatment, um, we have essentially a committee, a decision-making committee, that will evaluate uh, the circumstances, but also evaluate timing and when do those things need to happen and, and uh, the frequency of where it needs to occur, if it requires specialty services and things of that nature. Um, really it's an issue of timing that I really want to close the gap and time frame of diagnosis to a treatment plan. In studio with me is Commissioner Scott Semple. He's been the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Correction, I believe, uh, acting since 2014, appointed in, in 2015. He's stepping down from this position in January, but today we're talking about um, some changes that he has worked on uh, under his tenure to deal with how care is delivered to thousands of inmates in the state prison system. Uh, when you uh, look back at your career, you told me before the break that you've been in the Department of Correction in some capacity for um, more than 30 years. Um, when you think about these contracts that were uh, awarded to UConn Health, I mean, I'm just curious if was this, uh, I guess, a storm brewing in terms of the type of care that inmates were receiving? I mean, why is this all coming to light now? What were the gaps that came uh, forward, Commissioner Sample? Well, some of it had to do with uh, a perceived increase in litigation, uh, uh, increases in uh, 
complaints and things of that nature, uh, reliance on the medical professionals that were directly assigned to me uh, ex- expressing concerns, and then uh, somewhat of a deep dive into validating these things that were being brought to the agency's attention. And uh, as a result, uh, we took steps to look into that further, and ultimately we felt that it was time to uh, really uh, be responsive to this and, and as quickly as we possibly could. I understand, and we talked about this a few months ago when you came on the show, um, the DOC commissioned a consultant to look at uh, at least 25 cases that um, had some um, troubling aspects to it. Um, what have you learned from that report? That we have some work to do. And, uh, you know, um, the goal here is, uh, is to re- resemble a community standard of care. And uh, when someone is sentenced to a term of incarceration and they have medical issues or needs or behavior health issues or needs, uh, it's our obligation to respond to it. So um, we have some, in addition to responding to it, we also have to evaluate uh, what that looks like. So back in April, we implemented uh, electronic health record and um, I'm really pushing to, uh, in January, have some measurements that we can present to the legislature in terms of uh, what uh, uh, quality assurance uh, measures can look like. And uh, so we have something to uh, weigh ourselves against. Uh, When, again, um, when residents are aware of this story, and we're going to be hearing more from one of the reporters that's been covering it, um, you know, when we look for response, they're looking to you as commissioner of the Department of Correction. Uh, but when you look at it, you know, where does the buck stop? Um, who approved these contracts for years where literally, as the auditors um, have said in reporting, that um, there was really no oversight with how UConn Health was providing care? You know, that's an, an interesting question. Uh, my, my thought process in that is I don't want to play a, a blame game here uh, in, uh, in July. I own it, and uh, uh, I have direct authority over the people that are making those decisions. Uh, Because of that, um, I think that it puts the agency in a better place to evaluate what we need to do and where we need to go. I mean, if you look at the issue of uh, hepatitis C, for instance, the state is a little bit behind the curve in terms of being able to respond. We have a cure for it now, so we need to evaluate Uh, what we can do in order to provide a community standard of care for that issue. You mentioned hepatitis C, so the state of Connecticut is also facing a class action suit um, brought on by, I believe, an inmate who has hepatitis C, um, alleging deficient screening and treatment within uh, the State Department of Correction. Uh, You said that um, there's a a standard of care. Is there an issue with what the state is funding in terms of the type of treatment that these uh, inmates should be getting if they are um, positive for hepatitis C? We're, We're working through that now, but there are some practices in place in other jurisdictions that uh, manage correctional entities that have some practices that we should be mimicking. Is there any frustration um, from uh, your perspective because uh, you have uh, budgets that you have to work under? And coming up, we're going to be talking about when we look at prisoner populations in any state, um, they have considerable mental health and other uh, conditions, uh, needs that um, often cost a lot of money. Does the State Department of Correction, did they have enough of the tools to take adequate care of the inmates within uh, your purview? 
We are going to be in a situation, although the, that the overall population is decreasing, uh, 44.6% of the population is at the age of 40 or above. So that's going to require us to invest in preventative care measures and things of that nature. So in essence, uh, we you would think that it, it would be natural that less incarcerated people would require less uh, dollars in order to meet their medical needs. But because of the aging population and some of the uh, specialized needs of the population, in essence, uh, we will be challenged uh, as to, you know, and then and then the overall care of uh, medical services. Uh, we may require uh, additional funding, especially for the hepatitis C issue. Um, but uh, at the same time, I think it's one of those you have to spend money to save money scenarios, and we won't see the benefits of uh, cost savings until we put ourselves in solid ground. Uh, we're getting a, a comment from a reporter that we often talk to, Jacqueline Ray with the uh, Connecticut Mirror, who said in terms of inmate medical care, state funding was slashed 25% over the last 10 years. And facing more cuts, UConn Health said they didn't want the contract anymore. Uh, yeah, well, um, it, it, I think it's a two-way street uh, that uh, those were part of the discussions in terms of our uh, relationship and, and information sharing that we had with the un- with the university. But uh, at the same time, um, uh, when you're dealing with different entities and trying to navigate through improving healthcare, uh, it's easier when it falls under the agencies so we can have more direct control. A listener uh, wanted uh, some clarification when you mentioned it's important to uh, look at community standards of care in relation to hepatitis C, uh, people with hepatitis C, but in t- also in terms of addiction, the amount of inmates who, who come into the system uh, with addiction issues. Uh, can you uh, walk us through what, under uh, your leadership, uh, the state has done uh, to uh, provide medication-assisted treatment, or MAT? This is something that Rhode mm-hmm. Island's getting a lot of attention for. Right. Is it beyond a pilot? now? Uh, we have enhanced it, uh, but uh, we need to enhance it more. Uh, we, the, the Rhode Island uh, um, uh, medication-assisted therapy program is really the hallmark program for the country. Uh, we should try to get there. And so uh, just to uh, update our listeners who may not know, so Connecticut offers methadone to inmates who need it, but in terms of enhancing, also offering um, other uh, programs or uh, medications like uh, buprenorphine for one? Correct. So um, versatility in terms of treatment options is good. And so, you know, Vivitrol and things of that nature, we are dabbling in that a little bit, but are, we are leaning mostly uh, on... Um, Forgive me, you mentioned it for... Uh, uh, methadone. Methadone, thank you. Um, yeah, that's where we are traditionally running our medication-assisted therapy programs uh, in the facilities. So we started out with one facility, and we've expanded to several now. Again, uh, in studio with me is Scott Semple. He's commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Correction. Um, we're, again, we're talking about um, some of the changes uh, that have happened uh, in regards to uh, several uh, cases that have been brought uh, against uh, the state of Connecticut uh, with alleged malpractice. Uh, one of the changes is that uh, the medical staff in charge of care is now uh, under the oversight of the Department of Correction. This is something that started uh, in July. But as far as 
guess the C- the COs, the correction officers that work within the prisons, what kind of training have they received, Commissioner Semple, so when an inmate um, has a complaint that it's taken seriously? So our, our, uh, our frontline correctional professionals uh, go through 12 weeks of training in a variety of different uh, subject matters and programs and things of that nature, and they do receive training on how to handle an, uh, a complaint of this nature and what to do with it. Uh, in some circumstances, if it's a common cold, they may just uh, inform the, uh, the incarcerated person to submit a, a medical request, but if it's something more serious uh, or emergent, then we take it to the next level. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you didn't want to uh, play the blame game and the buck stops with you starting in July. But how do you see uh, w- these uh, malpractice cases being brought uh, against Connecticut impacting the work that you've done? Um, it's frustrating, to be quite honest with you, because it's something that um, I, I think uh, we will um, – we will get to a place where we'll be uh, proud of the level of services that, that we provide. I know that will happen. Uh, at the same time, I don't know if uh, we're ever going to uh, have uh, a circumstance where we're not dealing with litigation. Uh, when I first took this job, I was informed by uh, the Attorney General's office that the Commissioner of Correction is the most sued person in the state of Connecticut. Uh, I kind of knew that going in because I've been in the business for a long, long period of time. Sometimes uh, folks are, you know, just naturally litigious and other times they bring legitimate issues to the table. Um, but that being said, um, I, I, uh, that's to be determined. Uh, I, I think we need to get to that community standard of care, as I mentioned previously, as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, to me, uh, this is a very serious issue that we that we can respond to and can respond to effectively. Uh, again, you're leaving uh, in January. This was a choice uh, uh, that um, you decided uh, to do uh, January 1st. But when you think about um, your legacy, uh, should there be more transparency? I mentioned that uh, report, that consultant's report. There have been calls to release it. Um, that's not something that the Department of Correction has agreed to. Well, th- that is a, a an attorney-client working document, uh, and I'm following advice from uh, my attorneys and and with regard to you know what we should do with that report. Really, you have two options. Uh, issues brought to uh, my attention and uh, then a differing opinion from the contracted provider. So uh, I really needed to dive into figuring out, uh, do we really have an issue here and who is on solid ground in terms of what those issues can be? The ultimate outcome of that report is I felt that we had an issue. The, the other option would be do nothing. And uh, that that would not be appropriate as well. So uh, I really feel that uh, there are certain aspects of confidentiality that are are in that report that must be protected. But I also have to follow advice of counsel. Uh, before we, we uh, end this segment, um, coming up, we're going to be talking to uh, a mother of a, a young man uh, who died uh, while incarcerated from an undiagnosed lung infection. What do you say to the family members who've had uh, loved ones who uh, were incarcerated and uh, they believe through misdiagnoses or inadequate care that has led to uh, the death of their, their relatives? What do you say to them? These are tragic circumstances that um, that have unfortunately happened uh, in within the Department of Correction. 
Um, I don't know for someone who's also experienced loss uh, of that nature. Um, the only thing I can say is I'm sorry that this has happened to your child or your loved one. And, um, you know, we're going to, you know, look into this and we'll see what happens. Scott Semple, again, is the outgoing commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Correction. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, we are going to hear from the mother of a 19-year-old inmate who died from an undiagnosed lung infection. And we're going to get more details on other cases, again, uh, brought against the state of Connecticut. You can join our conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from Department of Correction Commissioner Scott Semple about the changes he's put in place to improve prisoner health care. The state's facing multiple lawsuits over alleged medical malpractice. One of the people who filed a federal civil lawsuit is Keishana Staten. Her son was 19 years old when he died from an undiagnosed lung infection while incarcerated. Keishana joins me now in studio. Thanks for coming in today. Good to be here. Also with me is Josh Kovner. He's a Hartford Current reporter who covers the Department of Correction, among other state agencies. He's been uh, covering a lot of these uh, uh, stories related to lawsuits against the state because of, again, alleged medical malpractice. Josh, welcome back to our show. Thank you. Uh, Keishana, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your son, KJ? Well, he was very family-oriented, um, always smiling, having us laughing as a family. You know, he was, you know, our 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 son in this family, you know, he, uh, he loved all the kids. They all loved him. You know, it. he just was a great kid. Uh, tell us what happened uh, where uh, it, he ended up being incarcerated, and when did you first learn about um, when he was not feeling well? Um, he was uh, arrested for possession with intent. Um, he received less than a year. Um, before he, you know, passed, he would have been coming home in, within two months maybe less. Uh, the first time that I heard anything, um, they called, the DOC called me, and, and they said, you know, we found your son in his cell unresponsive. And then uh, a month later, he was gone. I'm sorry to, to hear that uh, you lost your son, uh, Kishana. Uh, did, you, did he have medical conditions uh, that you were aware of before um, he was incarcerated? No, he was healthy as an ox. I can actually tell you uh, the two times he might have had, you know, a cold where we had to go to the emergency room because he had a high fever, and then he was sent home. Um, this, this kid never wore a coat in winter, and he didn't get sick. You know, so when they, you know, told me, you know, he had lupus and, you know, all these things, it's hard to believe. Uh, when he uh, passed away, um, how soon did you find out um, um, the cause? Uh, they said they didn't know. Uh, when I was at UConn, they, they were just saying they, they, they didn't know. And maybe, you know, a month later, it was they were saying it was lupus. 
I wanted to bring uh, Josh Kovner uh, into this conversation. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Keishana Staten is the mother of uh, K.J. Neely Jr., who died of an infection, an undiagnosed lung infection, uh, when he was 19. I believe that was in 2015? Yes. Uh, so uh, when did you first hear about uh, Keishana's story? And uh, can you walk us through a little bit of the timeline of, of when it was disclosed of, of what he died from? Well, Lucy, uh, he was one of a, a number of uh, stricken inmates. Um, a couple years ago, we we tried to get at this. We asked for all the uh, one-page death investigation reports. We were sifting through them. We found 14 where there was notes that maybe Yukon Health's protocol was not followed. We thought, okay, we found 14 deaths. Then we found out DOC flagged 25, as you mentioned before, themselves, including eight deaths. It's not usual that a State Department would uh, identify 25 cases where they know they're going to get sued, hire a consultant to review, get a, what we've been told is a, a conclusion around medical indifference, and then marshal and, and, and pull, pull inward to, to resist many attempts to release that uh, report to the public. Uh, we asked uh, Commissioner Semple about uh, why he wouldn't disclose that report. What did you think of his response, the same response you've re also received? Well, I can tell you, sitting at the FOI Commission, asking for the report and seeing the uh, good good folks of the AG's office saying, we're going to go to the mat to, to keep this out. They didn't even want to give the FOI Commissioner a copy to look at privately. They said, we're going to go to a judge, but they did relent on that, and she did uh, concur that the cloak of attorney-client did cover this, which we think is, is still questionable. You mentioned uh, this consultant looked at 25 cases where there were uh, concerns about medical treatment. You mentioned there were eight deaths. How many lawsuits have been filed against the state of Connecticut to date? A handful with at least three more in the uh, queue. Uh, again, it's an unusual. We haven't even hit the number yet that DOC anticipates will come. So it's not a question of if, it's when. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that now the baton is handed to Ned Lamont, uh, and we'll see. This is where we live. Uh, in studio with me, Josh Kovner, Hartford Current reporter. Also, Keishana Staten. Uh, she's a mother of a 19-year-old man who died of an undiagnosed lung infection uh, while in prison. She's now suing uh, the state of Connecticut. Uh, Keishana, uh, why did you bring this civil suit against uh, the Department of Correction? Uh, I, I just want justice, you know, for my son. I feel like my granddaughter uh, was robbed of, you know, the love of her dad, and, and, and she should, you know, be compensated you know, for that. And I, I just don't want this to happen to anyone else's child because this this nightmare, you know, I heard the commissioner, you know, say he lost his son. Um, I, I would hope that he would try to put himself in my shoes because my son was just robbed of his life by the Department of Corrections. And and, and that's very just un, unbelievable to me that in this day and time that this can be happening. 
In your reporting, Josh, uh, again, we're talking about uh, K.J. Neely Jr., who passed away in 2015. In your reporting, um, what did you find out in terms of how um, when he started, his condition started to deteriorate? Um, how were the complaints forwarded? Who saw him? Uh, what happened? A typical uh, theme running through these cases. Uh, mom, um, grandma uh, talked about uh, one day being told he was found unresponsive in his cell. Uh, that doesn't that didn't happen on Tuesday, and then Wednesday he's unresponsive. Um, there's indication that cellmates, and this is not just in this case, cellmates trying to draw attention any means possible to get COs to the cell and show them this young man can't get out of bed. This guy can't talk. This guy's got a hole in his palm and his, ble- his skin's falling off. Uh, that's where the negligence comes in. That's where people who are out and the, living their lives outside and, and uh, depending on the DOC to provide some law and order, they, they may have to think a little bit about the responsibility of the government to take care of people who are in their custody. It's, it's like even the Geneva Convention uh, acknowledges that in PO, tries to enforce some kind of humane treatment in POW camps at the time of war. Now, of course, that doesn't always happen. But uh, there is a duty, uh, there is a right that once you lock somebody up, they're given, you know, basic life-sustaining care. They talk about reaching a community standard. They got a long way to go for that. Walk us through the other cases, Josh. You mentioned uh, uh, a, a situation where an inmate uh, had sores. This was Wayne World, who the state settled with one point three million dollars. What happened to him? Uh, he, he he made complaints. They treated him for psoriasis. They gave him ointment. Uh, and uh, another guy had uh, the guy who couldn't talk um, was was symptomatic for months. Um, this was William Bennett. Correct. And the commissioner talked about the utilization committee. It's a board that UConn had, UConn Health. Uh, they had some doctors who would listen to requests for diagnostic tests. I mean, you you go outside, you go to a clinic, you you say my stomach's hurting. There's nothing saying what it is. They say, okay, we got to go get, we got to get a test. That was routinely denied. And Dr. Joe Breton, the medical director, the DOC medical director, who resigned after three weeks in the job, saying, "Listen, folks, we're not ready to take this on." So he he stepped down, and then he testified, and his biggest problem was the no, no, no nature of the utilization committee. No on eye, ear, nose, and throat. No on diagnostic imaging. No on gastro uh, tests. So that's that's how people uh, kind of fester with illnesses in their cells for weeks and then die after emergency surgery because the interim steps of prevention diagnosis and treatment didn't take place. Uh, you mentioned uh, Dr. Breton. Uh, he testified before a legislative hearing. And uh, when we talk about um, some of these cases, in terms of why there was no, 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 was it because of cost or indifference because we're talking about 
prisoners within uh, you know the Connecticut uh, prison system. Superficially, cost. Uh, UConn was starting to lose after $100 million a year, no bid. And, and, you know, we call this a contract. I don't even think you can call it. It's more of an agreement. And one time, Ben Barnes, who was Governor Malloy's budget czar, told us if we weren't giving them $100 million a year for this, we'd have to give them $100 million a year for something else. This is nothing more than a subsidy for a struggling uh, operation. Who I, 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 I like UConn. I like their campus. I like the fact that they have a, a, a presence, a footprint in the medical world. But the way Ben Barnes clinically looked at this, this was a, a subsidy. And I don't think that the service that was being provided was ever given the uh, seriousness that it deserved. The, there was no oversight in the kind of care that was delivered. You know what it was? It is unusual that a, a formidable, enormous agency like the DOC would have as a, provi- a service provider someone who was equally formidable and muscular and looking to make their imprint in the world. So you had two like-minded agencies. It wasn't a contractor-vendor relationship ever. So, you know, like... Uh, that's what the order, there was nobody in a dominant position to evaluate care. You had two equal partners when one DOC, which now has taken it in, should have been in a position, you're serving us. Uh, this is where we live. Uh, Josh Kovner, Hartford Current reporter, also Kishana Staten in studio with me. Kishana, as you learned about these other cases involving uh, inmates who received either alleged inadequate care or who also died, um, how did you how did you respond to that? I, I was sick. I, I it was just sickening to hear uh, that this is going on. You know, I, I I didn't expect for him to go, you know go in a healthy eighteen year old and, and never to make it out. You know, um, I feel for these other families a lot, you know, because I, I understand that this pain. You just someone just takes your child's life away from you and there's nothing you can do. Um, it, it's ridiculous. It really is. It's definitely living in the state of Connecticut. You know, I feel like more should have been done for everyone. Do you think that because he was within uh, the prison system that there, there was indifference? Oh, most definitely. It, it, it said that they're just numbers. And um, th- that's what these, you know, human beings were treated like, like if they were just a number. Uh, we were talking about um, some of the changes earlier that the Department of Correction has instituted. I want to go back to Josh Kovner. Now, again, a DOC in charge of the medical staff providing care. Is that enough? Are they getting it? Is there enough resources to provide the, the kind of care that some of these inmates need? I think you, you hit it before, and he responded that there's going to be uh, uh, a need for more money. Uh, the union said uh, a couple months ago that there were 120 vacancies. They hired like over 600 UConn health doctors, nurses, and support personnel, assuming that those people are. Um, competent, uh, there's still uh, uh, 
certain jails that don't have practitioners that can write scripts. So there may be there may be one practitioner covering several jails. Uh, a nurse, an advanced nurse, talked about uh, a clinic in Bridgeport filled with inmates, and she found herself the only one there. And these were not inmates that were just nicked up or or uh, in need of a quick fix. They were uh, there were Hep C folks. There were wounds, wound care. There was uh, need for diagnosing a, a, a a chronic illness, so she had an infirmary full of these people and didn't know how she was going to get through it. She told that story at a rally, a union rally, where they said there's 120 vacancies and they feel they cannot provide adequate care. Has there been any response from the incoming uh, 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 Ned Lamont, who will be the governor uh, come January, about how uh, he hopes to tackle this issue again? Um, there have been at least uh, two federal uh, civil suits filed, one on behalf of K.J. Neely, uh, Kishana's son, the other William Bennett, who died from uh, a larynx, larynx cancer. There's a hepatitis C class action suit. The state already settled a malpractice suit related to Wayne world who ended up being diagnosed with skin cancer. This is going to cost the state money for the next foreseeable future. And then there was a lawsuit filed by a Patrick camera. And that was the, I kind of said, well, now, Ned, you have one on your watch now. Uh, He he indicated that his transition team is is focused on budget and, and, and economics. Susan Bysowitz said once they get that structure, they're going to have people on the transition. They're going to have expertise in these different areas. Jepson said, George Jepson said there's going to be human service as a focus. We also have some attention that's needed with DCF and uh, Demas, the mental health. Um, So the answer to what Ned Lamont has said so far is he hasn't said much, but he's still in that transition, and they're going to have experts that are going to be advising him on on the way to go. And what's the responsibility of the the General Assembly? Um, Well, so far, people like Fasano and Summers Len Len Fasano, Heather Summers. have brought attention. I think more folks need to uh, maybe learn more about the issues, and this is a good chance to do it. Change in administration. They just got reelected kind of hit the ground, you know, it's sort of ground zero, and you could start, I think people need to get themselves up to speed a little more on what the potential liabilities are here. Uh, Kishana Staten, uh, before we let you go, you mentioned that uh, your son had a daughter. What do you tell her about your son? You know, I, I let her know, you know, she's just like him. It, it's amazing. You know, she's she's just like him. She's just a girl. And I, I let her know, you know, your daddy loves you. He still loves you. You know, she, it was heartbreaking when she asked me, you know, why I was sad and why, he, you know, he just can't come back. Why he just can't come back, Gma? you know. And I, and I had to let her know, you know, he's in heaven. He's going to always watch over you and he's going to always love you. And as she gets older, I'll make sure I'll just keep, you know, his memory alive. Kishana Staten, again, uh, the mother of K.J. Jr., who died in uh, 2015 of an undiagnosed lung infection uh, while incarcerated within the state uh, prison system. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Also, Josh Kovner, reporter for the Hartford Current. Uh, It's your stories and others that are uh, letting the public know um, what's going on, and, and we appreciate you coming in to talk about it. Glad to be here.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, how are other states addressing the health care needs for prisoner populations? We're going to learn about that right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Prisons are seen as correctional settings, but given uh, the needs of inmates uh, state in many states, should they also be viewed prisons as a vital health care provider? To explain, we're joined now by Brad Brockman. He's a civil rights attorney and assistant professor of the practice at the Browns University School of Public Health, where he teaches about criminal justice and health. He's joining us today from a studio at Brown University. Brad was also the first executive director of the Rhode Island-based Center for Prisoner Health and Human Rights. Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. When we when we talk about prisoner population, whether in Connecticut or in other states, uh, talk to, uh, talk us through what we know about the needs that uh, inmates have that make them a little bit different from uh, the civilian population. Well, it's not that their needs are so different; they're just much more concentrated. You know, we need to really understand what happened. Um, the context is critical. Um, the this population is marked by poverty, um, and this is across the United States, by poverty, poor health, and race. And particularly with respect to poverty, that feeds into the challenges of poor health that they face. Um, you know, the vast majority of individuals, virtually the majority, in, in almost all in our jails, are poor, coming from marginalized, low-resource communities, um, who face more competing challenges just to survive. But they also have worse medical profiles than medical uh, than middle-class individuals, higher rates of mental illness, addiction, chronic and infectious diseases. Um, and then they become even more concentrated in prison and jail populations, since many, if not most, of the individuals who we incarcerate have behavioral and mental health challenges. So we're talking 50 to 90% of prison and jail populations have addiction and substance use issues, and overlapping 50 to 70% have mental health problems. And just to give you a more specific example, in the general population, 4% of the population has a serious mental illness. In our prisons, it's 15 to 16% but in our jails, it's over um, 25%. It's about 26% nationally have serious mental illness. Um, and then these are the folks who also cycle up in the system. This population engages also um, in riskier behaviors. Taking good care of themselves, is an, uh, if you have an untreated mental health or addiction issue, is really a challenge. So we're seeing accompanying that a higher concentration of disease and health issues as a result. So our prison populations generally have five times the rate of HIV as the general population, nine to 10 times the rate of hepatitis C, 20 times the rate of tuberculosis, but also much higher rates of um, asthma, hypertension, depression. And so what we are dealing with is a population with much higher complex and overlapping medical, mental health, and behavioral needs than the general population. 
Brad, this cult? Oh, Brad, I, I, so um, given that context that you filled in for us, what are some best practices that other states are using within their prison systems to deliver health care uh, more effectively? Well, first and foremost, um, it's an issue of budget for whoever is providing the care. Um, this is a very expensive population to treat, and as you heard in Connecticut and elsewhere, um, money is a function of the, of the legislature. Um, the best health care actually is provided, as we've seen, with staff, provider staff, doctors and nurses, etc., who work in-house. In other words, what um, Commissioner Semple described as happening um, now or uh, Bringing all of that care in-house gives you um, better control and understanding, um, but it's also the most expensive, and that again comes back to um, the willingness of a legislator to, to pay for this very expensive population. Um, next best healthcare is, in fact, university and medical providers, um, academic institutions. But I've seen, you know, we've seen some issues with those in Massachusetts. They also lost the contract, UMass Medical. Um, and then the worst, of course, is for-profit. Uh, so, you know, the, the key here is to address the whole person and the, the fact that our prisons and jails are, in fact, the largest, not only psychiatric institutions in whatever area they serve, but they are the largest free public health clinics. And they need the resources to be able to deal with that. Otherwise, you will end up with the challenges of paying out huge sums of money for lawsuits as opposed to rethinking what they're doing and putting the money into care. Um, how much do uh, biases or, I guess, negative uh, perceptions of uh, prisoners and what they have done that led them to the prison in the first place, how does that impact uh, the kind of treatment they're receiving? Hugely, because they are deemed as security, first and foremost, as security and, you know, um, crime risks. They're not fundamentally understood as individuals who have um, serious medical, mental health, behavioral health needs. And if you understand also that um, typically, you know, Medicaid didn't insure low-income individuals. They insured pregnant women, um, children in their families and the disabled. So huge chunks of low-income populations can't receive care. And Medicaid wasn't even required until 2014 to cover mental health treatment or substance use treatment. And even in those states that never expanded, you have those problems. So what happens when you have individuals with mental health, behavioral health problems that are not treated? You end up putting them in jail and prison where they are treated as security risks but when you address and understand that this is a health problem, which has been the focus of our work at the Center for Prisoner Health and Human Rights, um, you know that we need to approach this and view it as a public health problem that is a direct function of a not functioning public health system that allows this to happen. Uh, Brad, we just have a, a couple of minutes left, but we are talking to you from Brown University. Rhode Island's getting a lot of attention as the first state in the nation to screen and offer treatment uh, to everyone uh, to make to see if they have an addiction issue. Um, and they're also offering uh, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone um, to help treat uh, inmates. Uh, can you walk us through how Rhode Island got there? Yes. Um, again, the 
We know we have tons of research that has been done about this population on the medical side, the mental health side. Um, we've been particularly focusing on the challenges of um, individuals with substance use disorders and in particular opioid use disorders. So individuals who are addicted to heroin, to off um, you know, prescription drugs that are being used um, not for their intended purposes. And that's an opioid use disorder. So it's, we have 26% of the population, incarcerated population in Rhode Island has an opioid use disorder. There's still another 50% or so with other disorders. Um, and recognizing the challenges that that faces, the standard of practice nationally is with someone who is getting treatment in the community for, say, heroin on methadone, when they come into prison and when they are incarcerated, the and, and that's a, it's a medication to help them treat their illnesses, um, which are diagnosed illnesses and, and diseases. When they come in, they are taken off of those um, cold turkey often and creating a cycle of, you know, it's like taking somebody, uh, a diabetic off of their insulin when they, you know, eat a cookie. Um, you're, this is medical treatment that's proven. Also with addiction, particularly with opioid addiction, relapse is a key part of that. It just happens. And that needs to also be addressed. So many of these folks who come back into incarceration have had a relapse. They may not have committed a new crime, but they have a dirty urine. What we found in Rhode Island is that if when and to the extent you treat, you keep individuals on treatment coming in. So if they are on treatment, they stay in treatment. If they um, have an have a opioid use disorder and they are all screened for this, they will be initiated before they leave. The results of this have been phenomenal. There has been a there was a 26% reduction in opioid overdose deaths as a result of the program, which had the impact of reducing overall opioid deaths by 12%. And again, this was an expensive proposition. Rhode Island has chronically underfunded everything, but the legislature put up $2 million for this, and it's been, it's been very successful. Uh, Massachusetts has passed laws about it. And, and we, Brad, we'll have to leave it there, but we thank you. Brad Brockman, civil rights attorney and assistant professor of the practice at the Browns University School of Public Health. This is Where We Live, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.